Join founder of I Am a Watchman Ministries, Scott Townsend, with co-host Dylan Burroughs, bringing you a fascinating discussion regarding the importance of Bible prophecy and Christian living today as it relates to our responsibility as believers to be watchmen. This is A View from the Wall. Welcome to today's episode of A View from the Wall. I'm Dylan Burroughs, along with I'm a Watchman founder, Scott Townsend. Thank you for joining us today. And in today's episode, we have the privilege of talking with best-selling author and speaker Bill Salas. Bill is an expert at explaining the prophetic relevance of current Middle East and world events, and his articles have been featured on WorldNet Daily, in various magazines, and extensively across the web. Bill interviews prophecy experts and discusses with them today's most important end-time topics. He has also appeared on Christ in Prophecy, Revelation TV, and Jewish Voice Television. Bill Salas, welcome to A View from the Wall. Hey, it's great to be with you two. Thank you. Bill, you speak at many conferences and churches and mention the term watchman frequently. We acknowledge that not all of our listeners may understand what that term means in these days. So we always appreciate it when our guests give our audience their perspective on what the mission and calling of a 21st century watchman involves. What are your thoughts? Well, a watchman of old is similar to me as it is presently. You know, we get back to Ezekiel 33 and some other references in Isaiah that tells us the definition of a watchman. Uh, Ezekiel 33 uh, told us that uh, God would appoint a watchman who would, you know, sit up on the wall or in a watchtower and that sort of thing. And he was to uh, look at the enemy coming at them. And then he would, would warn, sound the trumpet and warn the peoples of the approaching danger and enemy. And if he did so appropriately, the blood of the people was on their own heads and their own hands if they did not listen, whereas contrary... If he did not warn them, as he was supposed to, their blood was on his hands. And there were certain points of time where in Israel, for instance, the example, where they would actually have, there would be apostate, and the watchmen were, in Isaiah 56, 10, verse 12, it tells us the watchmen were blind, they were ignorant, they were like dumb dogs, in other words, they, they couldn't hear, using the word dumb. Uh, therefore not barking, uh, use the term of a dog, loving to slumber, greedy dog, self-centered, etc. And so we've had at various times, we've had watchmen in the church that have been perhaps in that way. I'm concerned about that as well, even in, as we see the church getting somewhat apostate these days. But it's the same litmus test. They have to be appointed by God. They have to know what's coming, prophetically speaking, and they have to sound the alarm so that people can prepare for it. So for instance, Noah was a watchman. He sounded the alarm that a flood was coming. And unfortunately, the receptivity was pretty minimal. He had seven people listening to him, his wife, his three sons, and their three wives. Uh, now, however, when um, Jonah sounded the alarm into Nineveh, they were receptive. They, something had happened inside of Nineveh where, to the king all the way down to the, his subjects. They were receptive. Uh, but we, you know, we have to see where we're at right now because we have prophecies that are stage-setting coming at us right now. It could happen at the present time that will affect the world, and certainly, depending if the church is still here or not raptured prior, will affect the church, and at least the people left behind if the church is gone. So we have to sound that alarm, and in so doing, we do what the other guys did, like Joseph. He he sounded the alarm about the famine coming with the seven years of plenty prior. 
he glorified God. He preserved the prosperity of the Egyptians and his family because his father and his brothers came from the drought in Canaan. Uh, Noah, Noah glorified God and preserved the posterity of his family, etc. So that's what we—that's what we do. We try to let people know what's going on. It glorifies God from His Word, and we use it as an evangelical tool to let people know that God is the real God who declares the end from the beginning, and only God who can do that. And so that's to me, that's still the role of the watchman. You know, but to be a watchman, you have to know what's coming. You have to be like the sons of Issachar who were told in First Chronicles 12.32, they understood the times in which they lived. And unfortunately, this day and age, many people within the church don't really pay attention to Bible prophecy. They are caught up so much in the secular worldview and forget that there's a biblical narrative and a prophetic perspective from which they should be gleaning from and patterning their lives according to those, you know, those prophecies. Yeah, well, I'm glad you mentioned this idea of the biblical timeline. You know, it appears that the role of a watchman is becoming harder in our days. And to me, at least, there's a direct correlation between the intensity and frequency of the labor pains and the unparalleled darkness and depravity we see emerging in our time today. Now, if you look at this, what do you see as some of the biggest changes that watchmen have uh, in dealing over the past six to 12 months, perhaps, in our world today? Well, it's interesting because um, the stage setting and prophecies are all starting to converge. They're sort of coming at us like a fire hose of things to watch for. Hardly anything that takes place in the Middle East anymore, for instance, does not have uh, imp- prophetic implications. I can remember looking at, you know, always looking for signs of the times over the last couple decades, and every month or two you'd find something that maybe had a prophetic implication, but now it's almost every day. It's hard to keep up with it. With Iran, you know, that's a real big one. Iran is the subject of two end times biblical prophecies. One is in Ezekiel 38, and one is in Jeremiah chapter 49, verses 34 through 39. Now, they're they're sort of the elephant in the room in the Middle East right now. They're threatening to wipe Israel off the map. They're, um, you know, a radical Islamic regime. You've got the Damascus. You got to watch out what's going on over there. It says Isaiah 17 says Damascus will be destroyed and cease to be a city. So there's a lot of things to watch, and those are just in the Middle East. There are other things converging as well with respect to the technologies that are going on and the artificial intelligence that's, that's taking place. You know, right now, there's really no technology that isn't developed or weapon that hasn't been fashioned or national relationship that isn't forming or already formulated that would prevent the fulfillment of all end times biblical prophecies soon and sequentially. And I think when the next one happens, it's been you know 70 years roughly since the last one happened, which was the rebirth of Israel in 1948. But when the next one happens, it's going to, I think, catapult into others that will follow on its heels uh, quickly. And, and each one will build and be bigger than the one prior, like the birth pains you alluded to. Uh, when the when the pre, the contractions start to come and a woman's giving labor, the intensity increases and the frequency increases. So this is what we're looking at. I mean, I, I look around to see if there's anything that tells me we aren't at the end, at the very end of the end times. You know, the, the, the theme of the latter days, the latter years, the time of the end is a central theme in the Bible, and it talks about a final generation, etc. So... We have to ask ourselves, where are we at on the timeline? How deep are we into the end times? And the evidences are, since everything is converging right now, um, we, we must be very deep into the end times and perhaps even the final generation. 
Those are such good words. And as we wrap up this segment, I want to talk more about the now prophecies and this idea of the terminal generation. So stick with us. We'll be right back with Bill Salas on A View from the Wall. Welcome back here on A View from the Wall. We've been speaking with Bill Salas, and when we wrapped up, we were just getting to this idea of the terminal generation. You know, we had Jan Markell on the program not long ago, and she talked about this idea of the terminal generation, that this may be the very generation that will not die before Jesus returns. And Bill, we know that we don't set dates as Christians, uh, but as you see the signs that may indicate what is happening in the end times, do you believe that this could be the terminal generation? And if so, why? Well, I do, because uh, primarily what I said in the last segment is that all the end-time signs are converging mm-hmm. rapidly. And therefore, you know, we have we have to suspect that once one of them happens, the other ones will follow sequentially. There's a whole bunch of end-times prophecies that have yet to find fulfillment. And yet when they find fulfillment, it appears as though they're all going to find fulfillment rapidly and perhaps all in one generation. And we have evidences that there will be an expiration date on the Earth's timeline as we know it. Uh, We have in Matthew 24, we have Jesus even saying, Surely I say to you, uh, in verse 34, Matthew 24, verse 34, that this generation, referring to a generation he'd been speaking about in Matthew 24, will by no means pass away until these things take place. So there will be a generation that will not pass away until the end times biblical prophecies take place. But these prophecies are ancient writings that are predicted. They're about to roll off their parchments and pound down on the pavement and pack a powerful global punch. They're not all going to happen in the same 24-hour period. They'll happen soon. They'll happen sequentially in relationship to one another. But they, I categorize them into three distinct different time segments, although I think they, all these things are setting up right now, these three different time segments. One, I believe, are the prophecies that could happen now. They lack preconditions. They could happen at the present time, which is what now means. And therefore, these are the ones we should be looking for. There's ones that have I call the next prophecies. I've got books called the now prophecies and the next prophecies. The next prophecies have some preconditions that will be out of the way, that prohibit them from happening right now. They'll be out of the way when the now prophecies happen, and then ultimately there's the last prophecies that will happen, like in the tribulation, with the Antichrist, with the harlot world religion, things like that. So when it comes to the now prophecies, these have always been the prophecies throughout the generations that could happen in their time that affected the benefit of the affected populations the most. We talked about Noah, for instance. He needed to know a worldwide flood was coming. Um, you know, Joseph needed to know a famine was coming, but he had seven years of plenty to prepare for it. You know, one example is Jeremiah. He talked about Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon coming to take the Jews into seven years of captivity. That was a very important now prophecy, something that was going to affect them in his generation. Jeremiah also talked about prophecies that were not happening in this generation, but they're actually going to happen in our generation, it seems to be. And those are important prophecies, but they weren't necessarily to his generation. So we have to ask ourselves right now in this generation, what could happen right now at the present time that lack preconditions? And there's about eight or nine things that I put forward in the Now Prophecies book that could happen at the present time. Bill, as long as we're uh, talking about the Now Prophecies, and you just mentioned the eight or nine, could you maybe just pick a few for our listeners to, uh, to get educated on right now? 
Yes, the one I'm looking at uh, right at the front of the list, uh, there's two of them actually that are kind of, I think, racing. I don't know which one. It's going to be a photo finish, which one happened first probably. But Isaiah 17 talks about a destruction of Damascus, which is the capital of Syria. It's the oldest continuously inhabited city in recorded history. It dates back to the time of Abraham about 4,000 years ago. And it tells us in that prophecy in Isaiah 17, verse 1, that you know, Damascus is going to cease from being a city. It's going to be a ruinous heap. It'll be reduced to rubble. It will exist no more. And as we read through the verses, uh, verse 9 tells us that it's the children of Israel that is responsible for the desolation of Damascus in self-defense. And that would be the IDF, who exist in fulfillment of biblical prophecies that I believe are soon forthcoming. And then you have, it says in verse 14, as Isaiah's chapter 17 concludes, that this disaster, this destruction of Damascus happens overnight. So one, it says one night you'll see him, speaking of Damascus and the masculine pronoun, but in the morning he is no more. This is the portion of those who rob us and plunder us, referring to Syria. It says capital C Damascus, plundering and you know robbing Israel per se. So in retaliation, they get cursed, and Israel destroys Damascus. And that's a very active prophecy that many of us are watching for because, you know, Israel's been striking inside of Syria during the last eight years of their Syrian civil war and not being met with much retaliation. But now that Syria's won that war for all intents and purposes, and Iran is supporting Syria, so is Russia and Turkey at this point, um, there's concerns. Matter of fact, Bashar al-Assad just visited Tehran for the first time, I believe, since the Civil War. He met Khomeini. And uh, he has, uh, you know, there's concerns that Syria's going to retaliate. And what does that mean? Does that mean chemical weapons? Does that mean strikes inside of uh, Tel Aviv? Does that mean Hezbollah will join in with their 150,000 missiles? If that's the case, that creates the type of scenario that Israel would thus probably take out a city to make a statement overnight. So we're watching that. We're also watching Iran, the uh, Elam prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 49, verses 34 through 39, is different than in the prophecy in Ezekiel 38, which many people are talking about. It appears to be a nuclear disaster that hits Iran by its west coast, by the Persian Gulf. That's what Elam territorially was, by the western side, by the Persian Gulf of Iran. It's always been isolated from ancient Persia. It's called Elam. So you had a modern-day map of Iran, you have Persia and Elam. And this prophecy specifically dealing with Elam was written by Jeremiah on 596 B.C., before Ezekiel even penned his prophecy on Ezekiel 38. And I've got a book on that called The Nuclear Showdown in Iran, Revealing the Ancient Prophecy of Elam. It's also in my Now Prophecies book. And I'm watching those two very closely. But there's also going to be a toppling of Jordan, a terrorization of Egypt, a concluding Arab-Israeli war. I believe that would be in Psalm 83. And peripheral prophecies are going to be expansion of Israel. After that war, Israel is going to expand territorially. There's going to be a vanishing of Christians, which I called, it was commonly called the rapture. Uh, so those are just a few of them. Those, if you think about that, those are, you know, world-changing events. What if millions of Christians just disappeared primarily through the America and and uh, Europe, et cetera, other places as well? Of course, there's Christians in Iran now, and India and China, et cetera. So, uh, and these Middle East wars are major; they're epic. So, uh, those are the things I'm thinking could happen at the present time. 
Well, this is fascinating information, and we're going to come back in just a moment and talk more about this. I'm especially excited to talk about this idea of Mystery Babylon that you have in some of your writings and in your DVDs, the next prophecy. So stick with us. We'll be right back in a moment to talk about this on A View from the Wall. Welcome back to A View from the Wall. I'm Dylan Burroughs here with Scott Townsend, and we've been talking with author Bill Salas about his series, The Now Prophecies, and the next prophecies that he has on a two-disc DVD where he talks about Mystery Babylon. And Scott, I know this is an interesting topic for you, so get us started in this idea of Mystery Babylon. In your next prophecies book and DVD, you explore and explain the fascinating subject of Mystery Babylon, the harlot found in Revelation. She is one of those main characters who is widely debated. She's been called a world religion, a literal city, a political ideology, and some say it's even referring to America. What is your understanding of Mystery Babylon, and why the comparison to ancient Babylon at all? Well, Mystery Babylon is a very important part of biblical prophecy. There's actually two chapters in the book of Revelation devoted to it and peripheral passages, perhaps in Isaiah and Jeremiah as well. So it's a very important segment of prophecy that happens in the end times. And it is headquartered in the great city. We have different references to that in um, Revelation chapter 17 and 18. Revelation chapter 17 and 18 specifically calls it a great city, as do several inferences uh, or references in Revelation 18. So it's it's commonly considered a global religion, a world religion, a counterfeit religion that comes into place after the true bride of Jesus Christ, the church, is taken out. The counterfeit bride comes in. And so this is what we would call the coming global religion. And it actually is different than the religion of the Antichrist. We have two, mankind has two double jeopardies coming at the end after the rapture. First you have the harlot world religion in Revelation chapter 17. And then you have that last for a period of time, and then around the middle of the seven-year tribulation period, the Antichrist, with the support of ten kings, will be on the scene at that time, will desolate the harlot, according to Revelation 17:16. at which point the Antichrist puts together his Mark of the Beast system in Revelation chapter 13, where no one will actually buy or sell or participate in his cashless economy unless they worship him and take his mark upon their right hand or upon their forehead. So we've got these powerful things coming forward. Now, I don't personally believe the church will be here for these this double leg of jeopardy, religious jeopardy for mankind. Mm-hmm. But um, the mystery of Babylon is a mystery. It says in Revelation chapter 17, verse 3 and 4 and 5, it talks about mystery of Babylon, and it says, mystery, comma, so it sets it apart, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and the abominations of the earth. And so we have to remember that a mystery in the New Testament is something that was hidden in the Old Testament, but it's going to be revealed in the New Testament. And we've had examples of this. For instance, uh, there was a mystery in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, of the seven stars and the seven candlesticks. And Jesus Christ explains that the seven stars, the messengers, the angels to the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks, lampstands, were, were the seven churches. And the seven letters written to these seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Paul tells us a mystery 
and First Corinthians, dealing with the time of the rapture, he says that this is when we will get our new bodies, that we shall all be changed in the twinkling of an eye. So see, we had a mystery there, but it was revealed by Paul, just like Jesus revealed the mystery of the seven lampstands. Well, fortunately, in Revelation 17, we have the mystery revealed to us by the angel that's speaking to John. And, and when we understand what the mystery is as being revealed by this angel, it becomes pretty clear uh, what city is being referred to and what religion is being referred to. Right now, there are five candidate cities that people refer to as Mystery Babylon. One is New York City for America. That's more of a recent one. The other is Jerusalem. The other is rebuilt literal Babylon, Iraq. Uh, the, one of the real recent ones is Mecca, with Islam being the harlot that's propagated by Joel Richardson, who I debated, by the way, in a three-hour debate in a DVD that's available on our website called The Identity of Mystery Babylon, Mecca, or Rome. I, I take the position of Rome, which is the fifth and more popular candidate city. But here's what the mystery of Babylon is. We're told in Revelation 17, verses 7, the angel says to John, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast, that would be the Antichrist that carries her, which has seven heads and ten horns, which are all connections to uh, you know the Antichrist and his empire and the ten kings, etc. But we're going to focus our attention on the mystery of the woman, of Mystery Babylon herself, the harlot world religion. What John saw was a woman sitting on many waters, and he didn't understand it. So the angel's going to tell us what was going on. In verse 17, Revelation 17, verse 9, we're told it's geographical location of this great city. It's a city that sits on seven hills. And, then, and of course, that was the name, notorious name of Rome, the infamous name of Rome, the city that sits on seven hills. Matter of fact, at the time that John wrote, there was a Roman coinage. The goddess Roma was pictured lounging on these seven hills. And Babylon was a code word, even in Scripture, with, with uh, in the book of Peter, for Rome. But the next thing we're told in Revelation 17, verse 15, it has a global reach because it was sitting on many waters. The angel says, well, those waters you saw, John, were peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So it's a city geographically that sits on seven hills, and it's a has a global reach. It's a global religion. And then he goes on to say and, and tells us real good confirmation in Revelation 17, 18 as he concludes Revelation 17. And it says, and the woman you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. So what, what, when we break that apart, he's saying to John, the woman you saw, past tense, is present tense in John's time, that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. So that would be Rome in John's awareness. So the historical grammatical concept that we look at is what would John and the people of his time have considered that to be? Well, it is the city that reigns over the kings of the earth at that time. The other thing, too, we're told in Revelation 18.20 that the city is responsible for, when it gets judged, it says, you know, rejoice over her, you holy apostles, prophets, and saints, because God has avenged your blood on her. So, in other words, we we had to think, well, what city has killed two or more of the holy apostles that therefore they would be rejoicing at the time of his judgment? And that would be Rome. Uh, you know, Peter was uh, killed at that time, so was Paul. Andrew uh, put to death by a Roman Caesar, as well as uh, James the Apostle's brother, uh, John the Apostle's brother. Uh, America didn't even exist, per se, at the time. They couldn't say that two or more apostles would be rejoicing over that. 
uh, being vindicated. Uh, Mecca, of course, didn't uh, rebuild literal Babylon. Iraq was prior with King Nebuchadnezzar. So uh, the the argument pretty much goes forward continually toward Rome. And in the next prophecies book, I put all the the reasons for that in the next prophecies book. Well, this is some powerful information. We've been fascinated today and excited about some of this material about Mystery Babylon and its identification as Rome. And if you're like us and you want more information on this, we encourage you to go to prophecydepot.com. That's prophecydepot.com to pick up a copy of his two-disc DVD called The Next Prophecies, presenting three timely messages from Bill Salas. Well, Bill, we want to thank you for joining us on A View from the Wall today. It's been an encouraging and informative time. And also, we want to thank you for listening to today's program and encourage you to check out IamAWatchman.com and subscribe to our email for all the latest posts and free resources. You can also subscribe to us on YouTube and our podcast on SoundCloud. Links to resources from Bill Salas are in the description below where you've enjoyed this podcast today. So join us next time on A View from the Wall. A View from the Wall, in association with I Am a Watchman Ministries, exists to equip a worldwide audience with biblical truth, sharing it with others, and being prepared for Christ's imminent return. The team seeks to encourage, inspire, and equip watchmen for such a time as this. For information about the ministry and upcoming events, visit IamAWatchman.com. A View from the Wall is made possible by the team of dedicated pastors, editors, and the many contributors of I Am A Watchman Ministries. To support our efforts, give online at IamAWatchman.com and click on the Donate button. Thanks for listening, and join us again next time on A View from the Wall.